Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. In our last episode, Dr. Jerry Werewell led us through a contextual overview of Hebrews 1 and 2 in order to situate verses 10 through 12. Today, we'll consider seven interpretations of Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, including, number one, the Father as referent, number two, Jesus as creator of Genesis creation, number three, Jesus as the creator of a figurative heaven and earth, referring to a political institution, number four, Jesus as the creator of a figurative heaven and earth, referring to the Mosaic order, number five, Jesus as creator of heaven and earth for the millennial kingdom, Number six, Jesus as creator of new creation. And number seven, Jesus as the embodiment of God's wisdom. This survey should help shed light on the strengths and weaknesses of these views. And uh, just a fair warning, number seven, we only barely mention because we're saving that one, which is Jerry's preferred view, for our next conversation together, in which we'll get into much more detail. But yeah, Positions one through six, we're going to get into it, and it's going to be awesome. Here now is episode 450, Seven Interpretive Options for Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, with Jerry Weirwald. Welcome, Jerry Weirwald. So glad to talk with you today about this important topic of Hebrews chapter one. Really excited about that. Thanks, Sean. I'm happy to be here. Looking forward to getting into it. Last time I played out your presentation from the UCA conference 2021, and your focus there was primarily on intertextuality and interpretation, setting up the overall context for Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. Did you want to mention anything about that before we dive into interpretive options for Hebrews 1, 10 through 12? Uh, just to reiterate maybe the major premises that I think that the Katina verses 5 through 13 as a unit is extremely important. And I use that as a, a basis for my approach as to why I argue that verses 10 through 12 has to be referring to Jesus as the, the Son the exalted Davidic Messiah King uh, who God appointed and who has inherited a name that is greater than the angels. And I think also this idea of enthronement that we draw in from Psalm 8 and chapter 2 where it's referenced, that that really sort of is what flavors the entire argument of the author of Hebrews, that the whole point of the Katina is showing from a series of scriptural quotations, seven Old Testament citations, the way that Jesus is now superior to the angels. And so whatever we think about the citations in the Katina, they have to be lending to the author's argument of showing Jesus as now being higher than the angels. So the point of the whole exercise here is the superiority of Jesus. And that, that's something that carries through the rest of the book, right? Yeah, it really is. I mean, show Jesus being superior in several different ways to the, the old Mosaic order, the old covenant, the old priesthood, and, and many things uh, that point toward the new creation being 
everything that's better than what currently is. Mm-hmm. And the thing about uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, and it identifying Jesus as being superior is that there's a number of different ways that you can see that argument actually playing out. And so I think that what we can do here is go through a couple of different interpretive options for how is Jesus greater than the angels by using Psalm 102. Okay, so let me go ahead and read out Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. And then what I've got here is a list of no less than seven interpretive options. And what I'd like to do is hear your thoughts on six of those. And then next time we can look at the position that you think makes the most sense and explore that in a lot more detail, although we might at least just mention it today. So Hebrews 1.10 through 12 says, And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The first interpretive option I'd like you to comment on is the idea that uh, I believe the Sicinians originally held, that here we have a scripture referring to God, referring to Yahweh or the Father, and not referring to Jesus. And so if this is the case, then verses 8 through 9, it says, but of the Son, he says, and then it quotes from the Psalms, and then in verse 10 it says, and you, Lord, that Lord there, is referring to God. So this is the idea that the Father is the referent in verses 10 through 12, and that this is, I don't know, a contrasting doxology or something, where uh, having said that Jesus is on the throne, and he has loved righteousness and hated wickedness, and that he's been anointed by God above everyone else. Now the author is going to exalt God as the one who laid the foundations and the earth. What are your thoughts on this idea? I mean, obviously, this is something that you ruled out of court by your presentation, but please give us some thoughts. Yeah, according to my contextual and rhetorical analysis of the argument of the author of Hebrews, it can't be a reference to the Father. But this has been a position that has been taken by a number of people in the past. I might say I'm most familiar probably with Andrews Norton and his explanation in his book, A Statement of Reasons for Not Believing the Doctrines of Trinitarians Concerning the Nature of God and the Person of Christ. And in there, he talks about this being kind of a follow-up to the previous statement about uh, Jesus being referred to as God, and that he has a scepter of righteousness, and he has a kingdom, and his, his reign is going to last forever, and that this is then a celebration of the power of God as the one who put him in that position and gave him the rule over his kingdom And so it comes to be sort of like you mentioned, sort of this doxological eruption in the middle of of the catena. And I think the way that they try to argue it is that it's a, a grammatical connection looking to the most recent antecedent uh, of the referent of the second person pronoun you. And if that you then reaches back to God, uh, that that would then it's sort of like follows that this would be about God and it would match the original context of Psalm 102, thereby eliminating any sort of discomfort, perhaps, about trying to figure out how this could be applied to the Son. Right. 
this is something that the structure doesn't allow. Could you like in a I don't know, thirty seconds or something, just summarize for us what structural components disallow a change of referent here for the word you? Is it just that we have these little intro words on each one of the Old Testament quotes, right? For for which of the angels or again and again and of the sun or but of the sun and and so on. Like is that what what we're looking at here? Just ever so briefly. I know we've already played this out, but uh, just as a reminder. Yeah, just uh, if you haven't listened to my talk from the UCA conference that was played in the previous episode, it really has to do with the inclusio, which is a rhetorical device, a uh, rhetorical literary device where you kind of bookend uh, a section of scripture where you're handling a particular uh, matter or topic. And then also there's a grammatical construction that seems to link together uh, verses 10 through 12 with verses 8 and 9. The conjunction there, Kai, uh, playing part of this uh, mende construction that then plays into uh, an address to the sun. So I, if you want to uh, listen more, I do a little more detail about it in the presentation in the pre- previous episode. Now in verse 10, if it said but instead of and, would this, uh, the father as referent idea have a leg to stand on? I think it would lend a potential contrast with the son and the father, but that would still not really mesh well with the overall argumentation that the author of Hebrews is is laying out here, because his argumentation really doesn't deal with the father. It mm-hmm. deals with the son and angels, right. and why the son is now higher or, or superior to the angels. And to, to bring in God as a contrasting figure, it, it really, I would struggle to see how that really would apply to the argument. All right, so let's uh, let's move on to a second option with Jesus as creator of Genesis creation, and that's the idea of taking Hebrews one ten, and you Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands, as referring to Jesus in his role of laying the actual physical foundation of the earth in the beginning. How would you comment on that position, which obviously is the most popular? among Christian scholars. Yeah, this is the the mainstream traditional Christian interpretation of this passage. And it has a few advantages in that it is very simplistic in taking the Old Testament reference in Psalm 102 and just directly applying it to Jesus and seeing a literal application at work. And so there's there's very it's very straightforward. The logic that the author of Hebrews would then be employing Uh, through a literal application, is that uh, Jesus is actually the one who created the heavens and the earth, and the heavens and the earth are a type of figurative merism. It's like a a figure of speech where you you refer to the different poles of a a topic, like life and death, or um, summer and winter, and it refers to all the changes and, and aspects in between those two. So heaven and earth deal with everything that is on the earth and everything that is in the heavens, and, well, that would include the angels. And so then the traditional interpretation is that, well, Jesus is superior to the angels because he created the angels, and therefore by his superior position as the creator above them, he clearly is superior to them. So that's the way that, that the logic is usually articulated. You know, the, the logic that Jesus is 
superior because he's the creator of the angels. I mean, that's there's no problem with that logic. The problem comes in is, well, why is that so important in the author's katina? And if that really was the kind of trump card, well, you, you don't need a katina. You just need one verse. Right. And secondly, if that was the point in uh, Psalm 102, uh, as it's quoted in, in verse 10 in Hebrews 1, you don't have to have three verses. You just have to have you, Lord, Jesus, you created the heavens and the earth. Case closed. I mean, you are supreme. But he doesn't. He goes on to talk about the heavens and the earth that are and that they're going to wear away and they're going to perish. Uh, but that Jesus is eternal and has always been eternal. And therefore, uh, everything in the heavens and the earth are transient and he is above them. Okay. So you're saying that it's too overpowered, or as my kids would say, it's it's OP. There's really no rhetorical reason if you think Jesus just is God in some Trinitarian way or Binitarian way. There's no reason to like have all these verses. Like, wh- what are you laboring at? Like, he doesn't do this to prove the Father is greater than the angels. That's just obvious. Uh, so if that's what he's saying here, then it's just too overpowered. Yeah, I mean, you're correct. It's really out of place because it doesn't it doesn't segue through the different facets of the sun. It's kind of like, like I said, a trump card. You just sort of like blows everything else out of the water. There's another component that is often included when the traditional interpretation is argued for, and that is that the author of Hebrews just has in mind that this earthly sort of ministry of Jesus and then his exaltation to heaven, and that that's kind of like the focus is this earthly Jesus who now returned back to his heavenly post, so to say, and that it's clear now that when he was on earth, maybe it wasn't clear that he was actually the creator or wasn't actually you know superior to angels uh, in his human form, but now being exalted to heaven again, he has returned to his place over all of creation trying to put in the sort of like human ministry component into the author of Hebrews that he, he's not thinking of like, well, Jesus was eternal, but then became a human and and was you know subject to the transient order of the created heavens and earth, but then now has ascended and returned to his eternal place in heaven. So you're saying that's a reason not to think Jesus is the creator of the Genesis creation because of all that? Yeah, I think that's I think it's a foreign construct that the traditional interpretation uses to try to make sense of mm-hmm. how the literal application could work. E- exegetically though, do you think there are problems with that idea? I mean, other than like the superstructure. I mean, w- let me rephrase. Let's say you're not trinitarian or binitarian or whatever. You're you're not seeing Jesus as part of God's substance or fully God, whatever. Uh, but you're you're looking at him more as an angel who is superior to the other angels. That kind of a position, call it Arian, pre-existence, Jehovah's Witness, lots of different varieties within that idea. What problems do you see for that position here? The traditional interpretation of this verse, I don't think suffers from any specific exegetical deficiencies as though there's any contradiction at play or logical absurdity. Uh, I think it's more hermeneutical in the sense that the author of Hebrews is not trying to make that point. And to see the argument being that Jesus is simply Yahweh and the creator and 
and that's the and he's he's deity and therefore that's the point that the author's making i think violates uh, the purpose of the Katina and the overall context that we see from the beginning of chapter 2, where Psalm 8 is quoted, and then, as I argued for in my presentation, that I think that that is really a dominating contextual influence for what the author of Hebrews is trying to substantiate with the Katina in chapter 1. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's explore that a little bit, because I think this hypothesis that Jesus is a super angel is somewhat common in Unitarian circles, and uh, I think bringing in Psalm 8 would really help with that, as it's quoted in Hebrews 2, and also recognizing that throughout Hebrews chapter 1, it's a little awkward to make Jesus an angel, like in verse 5, where it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? So now you have kind of like a categorical statement that Jesus is not an angel in verse 5, and then verse 6, where it says, let all the angels worship him when he brings the firstborn into the world. It seems to be putting Jesus in a different category than the angels again. And then verse 7, of the angels, he says, you know, you're my winds and ministers and servants, but of the Son, he says, and so forth. So it, it, the contrast is between Jesus and the angels. The assumption, the hermeneutical assumption, as you pointed out, is that he's not God. Because if he is God, then what are we doing? Why are we laboring to exalt him and establish his place as superior to the angels? There's no effort done to accomplish that for the Father here in chapter 1. Let's bring in your your other point from chapter 2 here in Psalm 8. How does that play into this understanding? Well, as you mentioned, the categorical difference is the author's aim in chapter 1. You have angels, and you have the Son, and... The sun is not an elevated, it's not one of the angels that got chosen above the rest. And that's what Psalm 8, the point of it is in chapter 2, where the author quotes and he talks about man, which is, you know, humankind. And he says, you made man lower than the angels for a little while. You crowned him with glory and honor, set him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 8 because he has in mind that Jesus is this exemplar man who fulfills this reference. Because he says, now in putting all things in subjection to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, that is man. But we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. So I guess if you take that, you have to say that, well, Jesus was an angel or or a spirit being, then didn't become one, and now has become greater than them. It's like he's going through all these changes that the author of Hebrews is is really, I don't think he's trying to make that point that there's some sort of uh, mutation going on with Jesus as the son coming from a category of angel and then becoming human and then becoming like this exalted human Messiah, Davidic king figure. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that verse five here in chapter two says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So uh, that's a very significant statement in that we know, and this is the obvious point, that he has subjected the world to come to Jesus right? That he is going to play this exalted ruling role in the world to come. And so if it turns out, well, he is just a transformed angel, 
then it, once again, it violates the whole line of reasoning here. Like you just mentioned, you have like the super angel who, however that happened, created all of reality, you know, or through whom God created all of reality. Call this the son of God version of the angels or something, you know, an exalted spirit being. I'm struggling here with my language a little bit because I want to be charitable to those who hold this position and not present a straw man here. But you have this overpowered angel through whom God creates the universe, who then transforms into a human, presumably no longer an angel, presumably a full human being. And because he becomes a full human being, he's able to activate Psalm 8. In other words, be a little for a little while lower than the angels, but then eventually have everything put under subjection to him. And then he ascends back into heaven to resume his super-exalted right-hand-of-God position. You know, it just seems a little... Yeah, I think for that uh, to work, you'd have to... You'd have to convince me that there's some sort of crypto docetism at play that yeah. I I'm just at a loss to to see where that is. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe if you had like a really developed dual natures view, then you could work it out. Uh, but if you do have a developed dual natures view, you have a lot of other problems as far as how is he a genuine human if he is really a spirit being in disguise you know, puppeting a human body or something. You know what I mean? Like, there there are lots of issues. <laughs> I mean, you might be able to make it work in a philosophical construct type of way, mm-hmm. but biblical evidence, you're probably going to fail. I don't think you'll find it there. Right. Let's move on to the next view. Unless, did you have anything else to say on Jesus as creator of the Genesis creation? All right, so let's look, let's move on to the third interpretive option that we've outlined for this episode, which is, Jesus as a creator of a figurative heaven and earth, referring to people and political institutions. And uh, we, we could even potentially combine that with the next one, which is Jesus as creator of figurative heaven and earth, referring to the Mosaic order. Uh, but these are two figurative approaches where, once again, verse 10 says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And that this is actually talking about the institutions, I don't know, whether spiritual or on earth, that pertain to the age to come, or maybe his exalted position at God's right hand, that that's what heaven and earth is referring to. Or that heaven and earth is referring to the law of Moses, because it does say later on in verse 12 like a robe, you will roll them up, and like a garment, they will be changed. So the, the implication is that they will perish, which is what it says in verse 11. Uh, verse 11 says, they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. So uh, maybe, maybe you could present a little bit and critique these figurative positions about how Jesus is the creator of the heaven and the earth. Yeah, these two approaches to interpreting heaven and earth in uh, Hebrews 1.10, they, they draw upon like some Old Testament figurative references where uh, heaven and earth uh, don't have a literal reference to the sky or, or the land, but are more like metonymies, where 
you know, they, they refer to the people who live in the land or the people or the ways that the, the cosmos has been ordered. And, and that's the, the mosaic order kind of approach or in the metonymy of the people who live in the land or who exist within God's creation as heaven and earth. That'd be like referring to the, the Palestinian socio-political order, referring to the, the people and the institutions that are currently set there. In looking at the political, uh, socio-political order in Palestine as as a figurative reference of heaven and, and earth, uh, it's often, I guess, thought of in terms of maybe there's a reference in Isaiah 51 that is used, uh, I think 51.16, where it talks about, I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you in the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and tell Zion, you are my people. So, here, the reference, uh, plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth, are referring to kind of a, a reconstitution of God's people, uh, Zion here being the reference to, to Jerusalem, and by metonymy, the God's people who dwell in Jerusalem, and that planting the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth are about ordering the socio-political structure by which God wants his people to operate. So, so you're saying there's a leg to stand on here? Uh, there is a figurative reference here that can can be used to see a, a metaphorical or figurative use of heaven and earth. So just to basically lay the claim, and I agree with it, that the words heaven and earth, either in the Septuagint or in the Old Testament Masoretic uh, Hebrew, they don't have always a literal referent. There is figurative uses of them. Mm-hmm. The question is, is whether or not the author of Hebrews has in mind this sort of figurative use when he quotes from Psalm 102, in which Psalm 102 doesn't really seem to be using a figurative referent. So that, that might be the weakness of this. And I think it's also the weakness of the other one, uh, the other figurative use where it's referring to the mosaic order. Now, I, I don't know uh, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to be challenged on this, but I don't know if there's a, a reference in the entire Bible where the Mosaic order is is referred to as heaven and earth. There might be, but I haven't come across it yet. Mm-hmm. So if anybody has a, a, an idea about that, go ahead and put it in the comments. Uh, I, but bet, wh- I bet you can find something in the Talmud, just because oh. it's such a big <laughs> well, <laughs> corpus. <laughs> Yeah, maybe the Talmud, or even in the in the Mishnah, perhaps that you'd have some some Jewish rabbi who would uh, see a figurative way of explaining that. But what I understand the main impetus is for this approach is that the big idea in the letter to the Hebrews is the way that the old order of the world, the old mosaic order, the old covenant, is being done away with. It's perishing. And that through Jesus, there's now a new order and a, a new creation coming. And there is going to be a, a city that will not be shaken. And so uh, this huge dualistic contrast, almost dichotomy between the, the mosaic order and the, the order of the age to come is really a huge theme in the letter to the Hebrews. And so the figurative reference here would be, okay, well, let's look at what does the author of Hebrews talk about that is going to be perishing and what is going to be remaining. And well, he goes to great lengths in the rest of the letter to explain that the old order is fading away. It's, it's, it's gone. Yeah. And the new order is, is coming and it's going to stay. 
And so you have like this temporariness of the mosaic order, but permanence of the age to come. And so it's kind of a conceptual framework, I think, that is applied to uh, verse 10 in chapter one in order to maybe see heaven and earth as a representation of the mosaic order. You know, what's so challenging about these two figurative approaches is that uh, in verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews 1, we don't have any kind of explanation following the quotation. You know, as, as you've pointed out before, these are just a string of quotes, and the only purpose that we're given is to argue the point that Jesus is superior to the angels. Like, it, if, if right after verse 12 it said something like, something about Zion, or Jerusalem, or the kingdom of God, whatever, then you could say, oh, well, this is a metonymy where the heavens and the earth are talking about rulership and political institutions. Or if it said something about, and so Moses is fading away, and Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, which is, you know, something he could say. He does say that (laughs) somewhere else. So, but there, there's nothing. It just goes right on to the next verse, which is, And to which of the angels did he ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, which is verse 13. So in the absence of any kind of explicit clues, exegetical clues in the text that uh, indicate we're talking about something figurative here, we are begging the question to assert this kind of figurative uh, position with respect to political institutions, or the Mosaic Order. A further point, and I want to get your thoughts on this, Jerry, with the Mosaic Order, if the Mosaic system, the Torah, the Old Covenant, is what we're talking about as Jesus laying the foundation of the earth in the beginning, that doesn't really help anybody, right? I mean, now you have Jesus, uh, what, on Mount Zion giving the law, and then you know, this whole order is going to perish, but you will remain. From a position of somebody who doesn't affirm pre-existence, calling Jesus the one who established the Mosaic order is not, it's not solving any problems for anyone, and it's creating new problems. Yeah, it, it still suffers from the temporal problem that the interpretation of Jesus being the creator of the heavens and earth does. I mean, any, any type of actual literal application of a function of Jesus performing in the past is going to suffer from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in chapter 2, the big point is that the law was given by angels. And he makes the point that, well, the new covenant is superior to the old covenant because it's mediated by a son. And, you know, Psalm 8, humans, as it turns out, are actually superior to angels, Although right now, that's not the case, but that's our destiny, is to be superior. So I don't think that would work either. Anything else on these two figurative approaches, Jerry, That before we go on to look at the millennial idea? There is a, a reference, another reference in Isaiah, where heaven and earth can be used figuratively. I think there's a parallelism in uh, Isaiah chapter 1, where uh, heaven uh, and earth seem to correspond to the rulers of Sodom and the people of Gomorrah, uh, which is is just another instance of the metonymy where uh, heaven and earth are used to refer to those that exist within it, Mm -hmm. and particularly the people, a certain people group here 
uh, is being referred to in, in a one geographical location. So it's not like universally applicable to everything, but it's just like in heaven and earth, there are these people and it's specified through the Hebrew parallelism to be the rulers of Sodom and the people of Gomorrah. So there, there are times also when heaven and earth are personified in the Old Testament. So I just want to really kind of like maybe... Uh, hit home that uh, there are legitimate figurative uses of heaven and earth. Yeah, so so your your point then is that the laying down of the foundation of heaven and earth doesn't, the heaven and earth there doesn't necessarily mean Genesis creation, but my question and my point earlier, I think still stands, which is that the text need to, needs to give you some sort of clue that you're, there's a metaphorical understanding here. Would you agree with that or no? Yeah, I think that whenever whenever you try to presuppose a figurative referent, it's always best to have some conceptual link or some indicator. Otherwise, it's really kind of just ad hoc. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like, well, this could be one way to take it, but there's no anchor in the text to actually point me in that direction. I rule out other interpretations for various reasons. Therefore, I end up with this one. Mm-hmm. You know, so, it, so it's a little bit, it's not arbitrary, but it's not as robust. Right. All right, let's move on to Jesus as the creator of new heaven and earth for the millennial kingdom. And the way this idea works is we have, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the new beginning, right? And so this is actually not looking back at the past, but looking forward at the future, saying that Jesus is going to establish this this new world. And uh, the reason why it pertains to just the millennial kingdom is because it says in verse 11, they will perish, as in the work of your hands, the heavens and the earth will perish, but you will remain. And so the idea is you have this interim period where Jesus creates this new, I don't know what world or world order. I'm not sure how you'd roll, how you would interpret it. And then it wears out, and then there's the eternal state after that. Is that summarizing it correctly, or what would you say? Yeah, it, it, this one would be more like the literal heaven and earth, the actual uh, literal referent, because uh, the order of the millennial kingdom and, and the structures, the power structures in that kingdom, that would be more like the the third interpretation we talked about where it's about the socio-political order. Okay. Yeah, that's about the, the coming kingdom and the socio-political order of the people in that mm-hmm. kingdom. Uh, but this particular interpretation would be more about the actual, there's like some sort of a interim heaven and earth in the millennial the kingdom. Yeah. Okay. Like it's there, there's going to be a changing of the cosmos into this period where uh, Jesus is reigning from the throne of David during the millennium, and that there's a special heaven and earth referent to that particular time period, and uh, I guess you could say geospatial existence, and it's temporary because the millennial kingdom is a temporary period, mm-hmm. and that it's in the, going to eventually wear out and be replaced by the, the eternal new creation that is that is uh, going to be unchanging. Well, one scenario is you have the, the fire of Second Peter 3, and some people are going to put that before the millennium, you know, as it begins. Other people are going to put it after the millennium, but prior to the eternal state. And you also have the rebellion of uh, Satan and whatnot in Revelation chapter 20, 
So, I mean, there, there's, there are enough pieces on the board to work with that you could say, you know, the current world gets destroyed. You have a new creation for the millennial age, and then that gets destroyed, and then you have a final creation. I mean, it all seems rather Hollywood and apocalyptic to me, but <laughs> that, you know, it, I, I think there are enough pieces on the board for you to generate a scenario that would justify this. That the author of Hebrews has this in mind, however, is a whole nother question. Yeah, if you see the destruction of the heaven and earth that is mentioned in Hebrews 1.10 and through 12, that's being rolled up like a garment and perishing. If you view that as the, the heaven and earth that is like currently in existence or is going to be in existence in the millennial kingdom, they both will have an end, as you mentioned. There are other passages that talk about the heavens and the earth kind of transforming or the elements dissolving with fire and things like that. So there are ways to see there is an end to a heaven and earth before the final one. I think the question is, comes up is, should we view the millennial kingdom as having its own heaven and earth? Uh, or should we view somehow the current heaven and earth being the referent and then it, it being done away with in the millennial kingdom or in the final new creation? Uh, that's the question of whether or not the author of Hebrews is trying to point to those realities. But I don't think that you'll find in the scriptures any particular specific reference that there is a new heaven and earth for the millennium that's going to then pass away and give way to the new heaven and earth. It's kind of like... New, new. Yeah. It's kind of <laughs> like the, the heaven and earth that now are, are going to be destroyed or going to be transformed, if you want to use that language. Well, he it, uses the word of laid the foundation in Hebrews 1.10. So you, you, you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, the heavens are the work of your hands. So uh, the millennium, it, it would be the new foundation that he laid. Yes. And... Uh, then the perishing would be the cataclysm after the millennium, but before the eternal state. Yeah, yeah. But then you'd have to see that there's a new heaven, new earth in between the now and Revelation 21. Yeah. So there's there's going to be some, some sort of a, a new heaven, new earth, which I don't think that the scriptures talk about there being this sort of separate heaven and earth. There's the heaven and earth that currently exists in our age right now, mm -hmm. which it seems will then be replaced or transformed, destroyed, uh, remade. You could we use the words restored a lot to, to its perfection. The current heaven and earth in the age to come will be replaced by the new heaven and new earth, the new creation. It's a hypothetical scenario, I think, that to say that there's some specific heaven and earth that will exist between when Jesus returns and when the eternal kingdom and the new creation are, are finally brought about. Yeah, it seems to depend on a lot of other doctrinal commitments that are possibly questionable. And it also uh, really reworks this word beginning here in verse 10, right? Yeah, well, there's a lot of different beginnings in the Bible. You know, the arche can refer to the original creation of Genesis, can refer to the beginning of Jesus's ministry, can refer to the beginning of the fullness of times, the beginning of uh, the kingdom. Uh, a, a beginning is a beginning. So I don't know, I probably wouldn't lay too much stock in trying to uh, argue uh, that beginning has to have a specific referent. It's just whenever something 
changes and you have a, the start of something new. All right. Well, let's let's be pretty quick here on our sixth one. Jesus is creator of new creation. What do people mean when they say that? And what are the problems with that position? The uh, idea behind this interpretation is that you take Jesus as the creator in a literal way and then identify what is he creating what what heavens and earth what is he he's laying the foundation of of uh, of an earth and he's uh, making a heaven and what could that refer to well the interpretation points toward the new creation the new heavens and the new earth of which it could be attributed to Jesus as the one who has the power given to him by God to bring about this new order of existence, this reordering or restoration of the world. Now, I I think the problem is is that if you read the quotation through, you, you find out that whatever heavens and earth are being created, they are going to actually perish and be done away with. And then there will be another one but there's only one new creation. There's only one new heaven and new earth. Right. So it's like, it's like uh, logically, I think you kind of just run into a roadblock with nowhere to go. Yeah. Typically in Paul, at least when we think about new creation, we are thinking about the what economy of salvation, the bringing to the end of the old covenant, the establishment and inauguration of the new covenant, the opening up of access to God through Christ, his mediatorial role in heaven as our high priest. And so if we want to call all that situation new creation, then the idea that it perishes is just really problematic <laughs> for the rest of the argument in the epistle of Hebrews. Well, anything with anything about new creation is supposed to be permanent and yeah. unchanging. Yeah. And so I think also to say that new heaven and new earth you know that when we say new creation, it could be the new self in Christ. the The body of Christ is called a, a a new creation. But when we talk about new heaven and new earth, that's that's not the here and now. That's a future event, and it, with a specific target in mind. So uh, I, I don't think trying to say that Jesus creating the new creation right now. I don't think that's what the interpretation is trying to posit. But I, I don't think that that also is what heaven and earth can refer to. Mm-hmm. All right, so just ever so briefly, dangle before us your own position in a very short way, and then we'll come back to it next week and explore it in detail. The seventh interpretive option, and these aren't the only interpretive options that exist. We're just covering some of the major ones that I have come across in in years of studying this passage. Mine, in this seventh version is that I'm going to entitle it Jesus as the embodiment of God's wisdom. And I'm going to argue that I think that Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, and drawing upon Psalm 102, that the author has in mind a literal application to Jesus, but only in the sense that he is being figuratively ascribed as the creative power of God, which was wisdom in the Old Testament. So Jesus is not the literal creator, but the application is being applied directly to him. So maybe I, maybe the word literal probably is not the best word to use. I just use the word, it's being directly applied, but he is being described as being 
this exalted Davidic Messiah King who has been given rule over all of creation and has been invested with the power of God's wisdom, which was an, a tool and agent that God used in creation. And therefore, he is being able to be spoken of figuratively in a protological way or speaking of sort of as being in the beginning with God. And he has now assumed that sort of role as being at the right hand of God and being placed over all of creation as God's vice regent. Hypostasized wisdom. Wisdom become human. Oh, I probably wouldn't use that word. Okay. It's it's well. more like, you know, uh, hypostasis um, or uh, hypothesization. 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 The personalizing yeah. of an attribute. It's it's a it's either a, a, an actual or, or you say an incarnation. It's it's about wisdom itself becoming something, so where, becoming a person. Yeah, whereas wisdom is not a person. Wisdom is is a way of talking a, about a faculty and yeah. an aspect of God. And so, to use that word, it would it would be kind of implying that Jesus is somehow a part of God now become a human, which would lead us into an incarnational type of view. Yeah, but not an incarnation of God, but of his attribute of wisdom. Yes, but still a part of who he is. Uh, Well, we'll have to leave it there for today, and uh, we'll come back next time and explore this wisdom Christology point of view some more. Thanks for talking with me today, Jerry. Yep, my pleasure. Well, that brings this episode to a close. Uh, Be sure to check out the previous episode, episode 459, on intertextuality and interpretation of Hebrews 1, if you haven't already listened to that. Uh, because it does lay out a lot of the overall 30,000-foot perspective of this text. And we didn't really get into one too much in this presentation, the Father as a referent, because because Jerry had covered that thoroughly in his contextual presentation previously. So check that out if you haven't. If you would like to leave a comment or question or suggest another position that we did not cover... I would love to hear your thoughts. Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 450, Seven Interpretive Options for Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, and leave your feedback there. That's it for me for this week, everybody. We'll catch you next week for part three, where we'll get into the whole idea of protological wisdom Christology. Ooh, that sounds good, huh? So stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support us, you can do that at restitutio.org. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.